Private Lives with Paul Robinson. Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's show we meet two world-class singer-songwriters, one from California, the other from New Jersey. Dean Friedman started by playing at weddings and bar mitzvahs and sending out demos, and eventually got signed. He released Ariel as a single and scored his first hit, but challenges with lawyers and record companies made his path less than smooth. Stephen Bishop formed his first group Weeds in San Diego after his brother bought him a guitar, and his big break came when Art Garfunkel chose two of his songs, including Looking for the Right One, to record on his new album Breakaway that went platinum. So first to Dean Friedman. I asked him about his recollections of growing up in New Jersey. Well, you know what? I uh, I grew up in uh, Paramus, and it was, you know, what to my eyes seemed this uh, idyllic suburban tree-lined uh, in a block uh, where we would play you know kickball in the streets and and uh, um, uh, you know my duck would follow me to school uh, it was uh, years before I realized the whole world didn't look exactly like Paramus New Jersey <laughs> uh, so it was, a, it was a nice place to grow up but as I kind of reached adolescence I, uh, I felt the pull of Greenwich Village across the river, you know, New York, Paramus is a suburb of New York City, and so uh, musically and culturally a lot of things were going on uh, across the river, although both sides of the river, if the truth be known, and uh, but it seemed like a place to go once I uh, was able to figure out how to, uh, to find the bus to, to the Port of Authority. George Washington Bridge bus terminal and uh, make my way into into the city. So, uh, you know, it was uh, sort of an ordinary uh, childhood. I had, uh, there were four of us, three siblings, and uh, raised by a single mom. You know, I guess the the trials and adventures that go along with all that that suggests, uh, but. Uh, you know, I grew up in a house that was full of music and uh, love, and we were sort of looked after sometimes. <laughs> Other times, in, left our own devices. We're sitting um, in a hotel in Midtown in Manhattan. Now, obviously, for listeners in the UK who maybe don't know how the Hudson works, the Hudson is the river that really divides Manhattan and New Jersey. Is that a, is that river a, a big divide in terms of culture and lifestyle? I mean, is, is it, are they very different worlds, New Jersey and Manhattan? They are. And yet, so many uh, of the cultural threads in, the, in all of the arts that seem to have been spawned in New York City, in Manhattan, are actually uh, the result of transplants from people across the river and across the country and around the world who uh, wound up in New York City, which is a magnet for so much of that. But those contributions came from not just across the river but across uh, the ocean and uh, and from all over the world but uh, you know it's, it still is a, a place where uh, uh, you know people uh, uh, migrate to to be close to each other and the arts and uh, there's an energy and a buzz and an excitement that uh, is hard to quantify but uh, it, it uh, persists 
And there's a lot of talent, of course, that's come out of New Jersey. There's lots of famous musicians, yourself included, from New Jersey. Uh, fair enough. Indeed, there's no question about that. I think it has something to do with uh, the, uh, the petrochemicals uh, that exude from the uh, major highway systems, the, the, the New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway. I think those fumes have impacted all, all of us in, in a similar way. We, for creative a, good, you're saying? For creative good, common denominator, whatever intoxicants <laughs> we've inhaled over the years have uh, spawned uh, yeah, a lot of creative artists, in particular singer-songwriters uh, and, and all performers of every ilk from uh, the, the wilds of New Jersey. Podcast Radio. Your very first guitar, I think you actually saved up for it. I did. I was delivering newspapers uh, uh, where I grew up in Paramus. I collected a, a bag full of quarters from uh, tips from delivering the paper, and I, I took it to uh, Manus Music, uh, 42nd Street, which was Music Row in New York City for a long time, and I... I, I dumped the pile of quarters onto the desk and I bought my first electric guitar. How did that feel when that money went on the counter and the man said, here you go, Dean, here's your first guitar? Very exciting, very satisfying. And uh, I took it home and I played and played and played until you know, my fingers were bleeding, really, from uh, having no calluses yet. I grew up in a household filled with music. My, my mom was a singer and that, that was sort of always the part of, a part of the landscape. Uh, so it was inevitably something I was going to wind up doing. But once I started getting paid like 10, 15 bucks to do a coffeehouse gig, I thought, wow, this is cool. I get to do what I like and, and people give me money for it. So uh, that sort of started things off. This is a life I could uh, enjoy. Did you teach yourself? I had uh, a number of really excellent teachers. Uh, I studied guitar um, and keyboards, and, you know, piano. Um, uh, you know, but even with excellent teachers, at some point you sort of embrace learning and, and, and assume responsibility for learning and studying on your own. Uh, and really, it's surrounding yourself with influences and listening to music. Also, when I was first signed and uh, put in the studio, I was always the worst musician in the room because. Uh, you know, the, the label hired really top-notch uh, uh, studio musicians from New York City. You were City. just inexperienced. Uh, I was inexperienced, right. Uh, so, um, uh, but these were great players. And so it took me a while, after years of playing with all these great players, to build up my own confidence in terms of my own execution and playing. Part of that learning process was sort of absorbing the lessons of playing with all those other really good musicians. Can you remember some of the guys you played with and the guys who you really learned from and you know, thought these are people I can really grow and I can really learn from? Uh, well, uh, the first uh, sessions involved uh, Tony Levin on bass, a uh, great bass player. And he, uh, you know, it wasn't just uh, that he fulfilled the role of a bass player, but that he was... Um, sort of very lyrically and musically inclined and responsive to the needs of the song. You know, just so many lessons. Uh, 
Gee, I, I, it's, it's hard to rattle off all the musicians that I've played with, but even my peers, younger musicians, uh, uh, folks like Donnie Sarlin, uh, who played guitar, uh, in terms of you know, the role that a, a, a guitar could play, not just in terms of, uh, of rhythm, uh, but uh, melodically and uh, harmonically and uh, you, you just learn from every experience that you're in. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. This is Paul Robinson on Private Lives and Dean Friedman is my guest and we're in New York City uh, having a conversation and talking about his life and his songwriting and his performing. So let's get on to being signed. So you get signed. That must have been another major moment and a major moment of joy for you, Dean. Well, uh, it, it, on one hand, it was yes, but uh, it, it was not like a, an overnight process. I mean, I'd, I'd been offered record deals before that had fallen through. I, I was once offered a deal by uh, Don Kirshner, who did Don Kirshner's rock concert, um, and I had walls full of rejection letters from every major label in the states. And and even when I was signed by Life Song, it was sort of a piecemeal process. First, they did a demo, and then they approved the demo, and then they uh, picked up part of the contract, and then they picked up another part of the contract. Eventually, it was greenlit to do an album. So it was exciting getting in the studio and uh, and beginning the process of recording. You know, from rehearsals, you know, through you know the the the, the mixing and, and 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 pressing and picking an album cover. All that was fun, um, and it was real exciting hearing my stuff on the radio for the first time. Yeah, I can't. Um, not any of that. It's just uh, I was very aware early on that something was wrong in terms of the people I was doing business with. Um, you made the wrong choices, you think? Well, I, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's just that I, I, I was aware that there were some limits to their imagination. Um, and uh, so I wound up uh, grappling with that as the years went on. So the first time in the UK we came across you was Ariel. And uh, that song is sort of a hypnotic song, and I think that put Dean Friedman on the map, certainly as far as the UK audience was concerned. Well, you know, it's funny. When I wrote Ariel, I was a little self-conscious that, uh, you know, in terms of storytelling and plot, not much was really going on. Uh, you know, guy meets a girl, they go on a date, they wind up, you know, making out at, uh, as they're watching television. So in terms of storyline, it wasn't... <laughs> That's real life, isn't really it? Really brilliant. I guess so. It, but it, it was when I played the demo for uh, two young uh, teenage girls who lived on my block. Uh, and after listening to it, they accused me of reading their diaries. Uh, that's uh, when it it clicked for me that I, I might have struck a chord and that it was saying something that... Uh, uh, meant something to other people. And you got your hometown into the song. I think the only time your hometown's in any rock and roll song. I suspect that's true, yes. Uh, I name-checked Paramus, uh, although there's a reference to the waterfall in Paramus Park. In fact, that was a, a, an indoor waterfall in a shopping mall, uh, although people imagine that it's this uh, you know idyllic uh, park with its trees and a pond and... Uh, a little waterfall, but uh, actually it was indoors. And and since that song, they've taken apart the waterfall, replaced it with a, a statue of a, a giant turkey, because Paramus uh, is uh, named for the original uh, in the Lenny Lenape uh, 
Native American language. Paramus means land of the giant turkey. Debut album, and um, you're hearing it on the radio. I guess this is helping with gigs and with the whole profile of Dean Friedman as a singer-songwriter. Well, you would think. <laughs> you think, okay. <laughs> I did a, 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 sh- a short tour, mostly of the Northeast. I did a promotional tour uh, around the country, uh, you know, just doing uh, radio promos. Um, the problem was uh, the people that were my managers that ran the Bottom Line nightclub uh, were attached by an umbilical cord to the office of that nightclub. They, they didn't really uh, venture out of that uh, venue. Uh, and the result was that, is that even as my records were racing up the charts, they had a difficult time grappling with uh, managing an artist who was outside in the real world. Uh, they were really unprepared for uh, my having a series of chart hits and uh, whereas I should have been touring all over the world, uh, they couldn't wrap their heads around what was required to do that. Uh, so I did a little bit of touring. I toured with the Little River Band uh, in Florida. I did some state fairs. I, I did you know, a little bit of swing of the East Coast, but never consolidated any kind of touring circuit in the, in the United States, in my own country, which is kind of frustrating to this day. Because uh, I've been able to do that in the UK, um, where I had uh, a little more chart success, but uh, it's frustrating not being able to gig in my own backyard. I can imagine. It's interesting actually that you had more success in the charts in the UK than the US. I mean, do you have any sort of rationale, any thoughts to why that was the case? Business and politics. Uh, I <clears throat> had a falling out with my management company. Um, and uh, because they uh, wanted me to fire <laughs> one of my musicians, and I refused, uh, and uh, they threatened that they would have me blacklisted uh, on New York radio, which they wound up uh, doing. Uh, so whereas Ariel was the number one requested song on WNEW-FM, uh, which at the time was the number one FM station, in the United States, and that succeeded in, in helping break Ariel across the country and made it top 20. When my second album was released, uh, because I was effectively blacklisted because of my management, they never played a, a single track off of uh, that album. It really does come down to business and politics. Uh, where my stuff has gotten airplay, it's been successful, and where it hasn't, it hasn't had a chance to. Uh, you know, reach the airwaves. Uh, that's just the way it is. But it is an advantage because uh, I, I am totally unknown <laughs> in my own country, so I'm never, you know, like harassed or so interrupted in around, the middle you, of a meal. You can walk around New York City and no one's going to stop you. Yeah, well, the truth is I can walk around the UK and no one's going to stop me. But um, yes. it, it's uh, I, I appreciate the, the anonymity that I enjoy here in, in my own country. So, second single came off that album, which was Woman of Mine. So, tell us about that song. Well, I wrote it when I was 16, and, uh, you know, lyrically, it wasn't something I considered very sophisticated, but I'm aware of the fact that, you know, emotionally, uh, I was being very sincere. You know, this young lady I'd fallen in love with took off and left the country. That uh, was the inspiration for that song. Um, but, you know, I realized in terms of format, in terms of the language that I used, it was really in the tradition of, oh, my goodness, 
my baby left me songs. Um, and it was just sort of my adolescent 16-year-old version of that. Um, Does the girl know it's about her? Uh, she probably d- does, yeah. So uh, for a while I was embarrassed to play it because it seemed so kind of youthful. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives. And Dean Friedman is my guest on Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson and we're in New York City. So let's go on to the second album then, Well Well Said, The Rocking Chair, and of course Lucky Stars. All right, well, the label didn't want to put Lucky Stars on the album. They, they were saying, well, you're a solo singer-songwriter. Why would you want to put this duet on the album? Uh, and I said, well, you know what? It's, it's a nice song. I bet people like it. And uh, so uh, they relented. And I had met Denise through uh, Don Palouse, who had engineered my first album. And he was working with her and uh, brought her into the studio at CBS Studios. And uh, she's she sang and her voice just filled the room and so when I wrote Lucky Star songs and was thinking about who could sing the girls part I, I thought of Denise I knew she could do a good job and indeed she did. Those harmonies are so haunting they're so beautiful. Uh, we were young and uh, you know intent on what we were doing and uh, I think that in terms of the the subject matter, it's a topic that a lot of couples could relate to. When I talk to songwriters, they say often they start with a title and then the song comes from there. How do you write your songs, Dean? You know, I have to say every time is different. Sometimes it starts uh, with a, an idea for a song, a theme. Sometimes it'll start with a, a title or a single lyrical phrase or sometimes it'll start with just a chord progression or a rhythmic figure you know a riff on a guitar uh, it, it really could be anything but w- once you stumble upon some kernel of an idea that uh, grabs your attention that you like that you get pleasure out of playing over and over again then it's sort of like doing a crossword puzzle in my mind which is that you have one corner of the puzzle that you really got it right and so you got to get all the rest of the crossword puzzle to fit and match. And so that, you know, that's where the craft comes into play. And, you know, you sort of invite uh, inspiration and, and try to create a, a, a sort of safe haven for uh, writing and, 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 and being creative. Uh, but it's the, the craft part of it that, that where you wrestle with those ideas and try to put them in the right place. And do some songs happen quickly and others take longer or is there a a standard sort of process you go through? You know, some songs write themselves, God bless them, (laughs) and then you just got to write them down real fast uh, or record them so you don't forget them. But that's very rare, at least in my experience. More often than not, uh, I'll, you know, just generate ideas as I improvise and uh, it could be on a piano or a guitar or you know my studio itself which is would be a digital audio workstation where I've access to lots of sounds and samples um, sometimes it's just at an alphanumeric keyboard my word processor just coming up with you know couplets and phrases and ideas for songs <clears throat> and I, I accumulated a lot of sketches and once it's ready to go into the studio to do a new album I sort of revisit those sketches sort of sift through any uh, that that I I sort of particularly like and, and think I might 
uh, explore them further and, and see if I could work on them, develop them a little bit more. So, you know, it, it's through that process of improvising and sketching and generating lots of ideas and, and then sort of going back and revisiting them and editing them and, and uh, creating, uh, you know, complete work uh, after sort of stumbling around in the dark and banging your head against the wall for a while. Well, let's go on to um, the next album, Rumpled Romeo, and this is probably, I think, one of my favorite albums. Thank you for saying so. I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. Well, let me ask you, what, what was it about you that s- struck you in such a way? Well, I was a DJ by this point, so I was on the radio, so I was playing this album a lot. So I guess I gave it a lot of airplay, but also somehow it just sort of chimed with me, a particular stage in my life at that point. I'm not quite sure what it was, but somehow it just sort of meant something to me at that time in my life. Can I ask, was there a particular song that you were oriented to? Well, I really <coughs> liked McDonald's Girl okay. because we were able to play it on commercial radio and uh-huh. the BBC was not. Well, you know, I'm grateful for that. I appreciate it because... Uh, it was a little song that got overlooked but insisted on being heard. So I appreciate that you did give it a plug. You know what? Uh, that whole album uh, uh, came about after an aborted project with my first label. You know, I kept releasing good music uh, for that first label, uh, and I kept having hits, but I wasn't getting paid. And I wasn't. Why not paint? Well, it's the way the record business works. Uh, that's another interview, but uh, they charge the artists for everything while they continue to profit before you ever see a penny. But let's just go back to Madonna's Girl. When you wrote that, did you expect people to react negatively because it was commercial, too commercial, advertising a burger chain? You know, I was unprepared for uh, the reality of uh, BBC Radio not playing anything that at the time hinted at commercialism. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, there was no thought of changing it because it was so fundamental to the chorus and, and to the character and to my experience as an American, you know, growing up and uh, having a crush on the girl behind the counter. And it really was a crush on the girl serving at McDonald's? Well, it's more complicated than that. Actually, well, we won't go into it. But no, okay. But uh, yes, you know, again, being a, a, a performing musician, it's not uncommon to, to finish a gig and then, you know, pack up and then find some diner to get a cheeseburger at, at two o'clock in the morning. And it's easy to fall in love with the waitresses that feed you. So, um, uh, you know, there, there was no thought about changing the lyric and the label at the time insisted that uh, they were going to release it, even though there were concerns about the ban. Uh, but then once it was banned, they just lost interest in, in, in that. But as you know, it went on and persisted. It was covered by uh, then unknown group out of Canada called Bare Naked Ladies. It was one of their first airplay hits in, in, in Canada. And uh, um, then YouTube came along. It, it went viral. The Blenders had a number one hit with it. Anyway. Uh, eventually, 30 years plus years after it was released, the McDonald's Corporation licensed it for a national TV and radio campaign. So you made some money. It took a while, yes, but eventually I did. Uh, it just made me proud of the song because I, I always believed in the song. 
you know, people say, oh, well, did you know that was a hit when you wrote it? And uh, of, of a lot of songs. And, and sometimes that's not the case. But in the case of McDonald's Girl, I always believed it to be a pure, earnest, true blue pop song. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. To find out more, visit eastlondonradio.org.uk. You've been very innovative in terms of funding albums. I think you were probably one of the first uh, rock stars to use crowdfunding. Well, I'm aware that Marillion, the band Marillion, did it first uh, when they crowdfunded uh, an American tour. Um, yeah, Steve Hogarth was a guest of ours a while ago, and he told us that, yes. And uh, But as I'm aware, I, I, I was the first solo artist after that, because, you know, within a year of that happening in 2001, I crowdfunded uh, uh, my album titled The Trios Journals. Uh, and... Uh, um, basically, I had a bunch of songs. I wanted to go back in the studio, but I didn't want to wait another 20 years for some label to give me permission. So uh, it was the early days of the Internet, and so I asked folks on my email list at the time, only a few thousand, you know, whether they would pre-order an album in advance to give me the money to pay musicians, upgrade my studio, print up CDs. And uh, I was a little nervous. They were all going to say, Dean, why don't you just get a proper job? And some people actually did write back and say, Dean, why don't you get a proper job? But enough people were supportive of the idea that uh, I was able to make that album and I've been crowdfunding my albums ever since. And you've got a very strong loyal fan base I think. I do and I appreciate them and uh, uh, the, you know because it's the nice thing about the internet is that it's not just one-way broadcasting it's two-way communication and and you know my listeners uh, are very vocal about what they like and don't like and their suggestions and thoughts and uh and you I actively listen to their thoughts of course i appreciate it yeah i mean it doesn't mean i act on every no, suggestion but you listen, is what i said yeah, you but, listen. yeah i'm happy to listen and uh, it's nice that they're engaged and you're working in vr well you know what uh if there was a period of time almost 20 years where i was pretty much ejected from the music industry after mcdonald's girl was banned and during that time, I explored music synthesis and electronic synthesis, and I stumbled upon all kinds of multimedia technologies that uh, were really exciting and, and that I pursued in my own way. And it started out with the synthesizers. I, I talked my way into uh, writing what became the first consumer guide for synthesizers and a book called Synthesizer Basics and a video series called Intro to Synthesis. And because I was just learning the stuff myself, I think I was able to explain it simply in layman's terms. That made it very popular. Uh, and so my synthesizer books were used at universities and, and conservatories all over the world. Uh, and uh, the video series is still the go-to video series. It went viral on YouTube. All that electronic synthesis work uh, led to uh, an experience where I... I I saw a demonstration of a early uh, video camera interface virtual reality uh, technology, um, and it blew me away. And they were selling developers kits, and so I bought a developer kit, and I designed a silly game called Edabug, which I licensed to Nickelodeon Television. Uh, and this was 20 years before Microsoft's Kinect and Xbox uh, were uh, uh, allowing you to do the same thing. Uh, I did it in 1989 for Nickelodeon and then uh, subsequently for a, a Nickelodeon series called Nick Arcade and started designing and developing and programming 
virtual reality video games for uh, television and for leading children's museums and science museums all over the world. Uh, and uh, had a lot of fun doing it all through the 90s. And then just like uh, Michael Corleone's and Godfather says, and just when I was trying to get back out of the music business, they pulled me back in. And so in 98, I put that VR aside and, uh, and did a new album called Songs for Grownups. And, uh, you know, I never stopped being a musician and never stopped writing songs. Uh, but having an opportunity to get back into the music business um, and then being able to crowdfund my own albums after that, uh, you know, put me back where I started, which is uh, writing songs and singing them and, uh, and making music. And we're delighted you're doing that and we want to continue doing that. When are you going to come to the UK next, Dean? Uh, I have another tour booked uh, for 2020. I, I, I kick off in uh, middle of April in Belfast. Uh, I head south to Dublin and then I cross over to the UK and uh, to England, Wales and, and, and Scotland. And uh, I do about 40 plus uh, gigs between April and August. I always wind up at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August. This will be, I think, my 17th run. Um, and uh, But I'll be playing all over the UK. Uh, and all the dates are on my website, which is deanfriedman.com. Yeah. I invite your listeners to send me an email, get on the email list, and uh, I'll be able to uh, keep you posted with updates and uh, occasional rants and raves from an indie musician. Sounds good. So deanfriedman.com, deanfriedman.com. Dean, been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And can keep touring, keep writing, keep coming to the UK. Um, well, East London's the most vibrant area of London by far. Like, I spent a lot. I love what East London Radio is all about because it's all about the community. It's it's about bringing different people together, different views, and I love talking, <laughs> which is yeah. So that's right up my street as well. Uh, we all do it. For, for the love of it, because we love radio, we love what we do. And East London Radio is such a good community radio. We are East London Radio. Dean Friedman there. And thank goodness I worked in commercial radio when McDonald's Girl came out, or I wouldn't have had the chance to play it. Next, we cross to the west coast of the US and Stephen Bishop, whose songwriting career is prolific. I asked him whether he wrote songs 24-7. Oh, no, just the opposite. I'm like... Uh... I'm like, if it, there's a good TV show on, I'm like going to watch it, you know, <laughs> and then put the song off to the side. Um, you know, it's sad to say, I think of myself as a very lazy songwriter. You know, I mean, when you think of like Jimmy Webb or Randy Newman, they like, you know, have their own office to write songs in, you know, and, uh, you know, like Randy Newman, like for a long time, just went to the office every day, you know, nine to five, you know, to write songs. I couldn't do that. So you write when the mood takes you. Yeah, I really do. And what sort of mood is that? Um, you know, it's about titles for me as a songwriter. I'm, uh, I, I, I need a good title to, uh, to get inspired uh, to write. And if I hear a great title, you know, then boom, I'm, I'm off. I, I did a Brazilian album, uh, you know, and I had this one song on it that was not that Brazilian, but it's, uh, it was a different song. It was like, I saw the uh, title in this record store and, um, it was, um, uh, New York in the fifties. And I saw this on a, you know, it was a, a video 
And um, I thought, oh, what a title, New York in the 50s. So <laughs> I researched and I got on my computer and did all this work and, uh, you know, and, and uh, wrote the song. And have you uh, maybe sometimes got titles from unusual places? Sure. Well, they can come from anywhere. I mean, if, you know, I could, I could, you know, meet somebody with great, a girl with great shoes or something and great shoes, you know, blah, 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 you know, whatever the the inspiration is. Whatever the inspiration is. What's the most unusual inspiration you've had? Can you think of a really quirky, really weird one? In my early days, I was writing crazy songs like, uh, Benny the Wharf Rat and all about this guy named Benny the Wharf Rat. <laughs> you know, when I was about 17, 18, I was writing some serious, uh, silly songs like uh, Dump the Spittoon over Aunt Natty's Head and, uh, you know, Beer Can on the Beach and um, There's a Hair in My Enchilada. That's a very important thing to write about. That's a you know, very big issue, I'd have thought, having a hair in your enchilada. I would think so. <laughs> Do you not think? I mean, when you're 17, 18, what do you know? I mean, you look back now, I mean, we know we're both older, a similar age. And I mean, at 17, you know nothing really, do you? Well, I don't know. I was learning. You yeah. know, I, 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 you know, started writing songs when I was around 14. And, you know, it became my own little world, you know. Uh, it became, a, um, you know, a really incredible uh, little w- world of my own. You know, I would come up with these ideas like... Uh, this queen of Lotharia and call it the Lotharian queen, you know, and write this whole made up, you know, story. As a fantasy. Um, And I still do that. I still make up these stories. You know, I have it on my new album, you know, I mean, there's, 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 uh, I I still do that, you know. So Stephen, uh, you talked about writing songs when you were 14. At what point did you realize you could write songs? It seems like I was writing songs from the very beginning. But you formed a group, didn't you, The Weeds, which was sort of a, a British sort of invasion-style band. Well, you know, we didn't know anything about pot or anything back then. You know, uh, it, it was like, you know, we were so naive. You know, we had different names, and then we finally decided on that one. But, you know, it was, we were just kids. Yeah, and that was in San Diego. And then you moved to L.A., and then you started looking for a solo recording contract. But I think it was uh, a tough thing to secure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I moved to L.A. and uh, I was excited, you know, and to be on my own and be away from my parents. Uh, you know, I, I just had a, a unique uh, experience. And then I worked with this publisher, E.H. Um, e. Morris, who signed me as a staff writer. How much were you earning? Can you remember? I was making $50 a week. Okay. You know, I was uh, often, you know, running. But the songs, I was just, you know, it's it like anything. You know, songwriting, the more you do it, the more you practice, you know, the better you get, you know. But you had a lot of rejections, didn't you? I mean, just thinking about, you know, young songwriters now who are trying maybe to do what Stephen Bishop did all those years ago. You didn't get a contract straight away. You had lots of rejections. I did. I remember just telling um, someone just the other day about this one guy I went to see. I had already written on and on and one more night and a lot of my big songs. And uh, I wound up, you know, um, seeing this publisher trying to get another publishing deal. And uh, he played like, you know, a little bit of on and on. It was like down in Jamaica. They got, he puts it on fast forward. Boom. You know, I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> he puts it on. And then he, one more night, you know, give me one more night one of my biggest songs and um 
he puts it on fast forward. And so I finally said, Hey, could you try rewind this time? Right. And he said, I don't tell you, I don't tell you songwriters how to write their songs. You shouldn't tell me how to run my office. So I was like, oh, fine. That was pretty clear then. Then I was out of there. <laughs> that was it, gone. And That's when, right. when, and when you got rejections, what sort of rejections did you get? I mean, what, what were the reasons you were given by these publishers for turning Stephen Bishop down? Uh, you know, it didn't sound like, you know, the newest share single back then. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, really. Thank goodness for <laughs> but, that. But you know, it's I, I've done a lot of albums now, and I've you know been an artist for many years. You know, it's a learning process. Right. But your break came, I think, with Art Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah. He wound up doing two of my songs on his album Breakaway, and uh, that was pretty thrilling for me at the time. I was pretty thrilled, um, and it just went on from there. I mean, since then, I've had a lot of artists do my stuff. Right, and how did yeah. that how did that meeting with Art Garfunkel come about? Uh, through my uh, friend Leah Kunkel. Right. Uh, she uh, was the uh, at the time the wife of uh, Russ Kunkel, and then he was doing a session or something like that. She gave him a cassette of mine to give to Garfunkel, and he really liked it. And you know, and then it was a pretty big thing at that time because he was. Uh, you know, he's he's a great artist and he's a great singer and he wound up doing both of my songs. So that was pretty cool. And at one the... point he was gonna do at one point he was gonna do a whole album of Stephen Bishop songs. Oh right, okay. What stopped him? Well his uh his producer, Richard Perry. <laughs> I overheard the conversation in New York. Can you repeat uh, I... it? Was it clean? Well, yeah. I mean it's just it was just the producer said, Look, I don't think uh, you know we want to do a whole album of Stephen Bishop's And he was like, why not? And, you know, <laughs> it was pretty cool. Let's go back to the, the first album. I mean, when that, when that first album came out, how did you feel as an artist? You know, you've been working for a while. You'd written lots of songs. You'd been turned down for a while. And then you had your first album. That must have been a, a pivotal moment and a moment of great satisfaction, I'd have thought, Stephen. It was. It was. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was very exciting. And, um, it was at a time, I must have been about 25, 26, uh, and uh, I was working with Roy Halley in the beginning of the album, who signed me to the record company, and he was the producer of Simon and Garfunkel, so it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and then he was producing me, and we had some disagreements over piano player, and um, he decided that I should work with another producer. Uh, and so I wound up working with Henry Louis, who did all the uh, Joni Mitchell albums. Mm. And, um, you know, I was off and away. And on that album, you had, as well as Art Garfunkel, Chaka Khan and Eric Clapton also contributing to it. Yeah, I was Eric Clapton, Chaka Khan, Art Garfunkel. You know, everybody always asked me when I did interviews back then, you know, how did you get these people? That's what I was yeah. going to ask you now. It's, I know it's a boring question, but it's a great question. Did they owe you money? I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's just uh, I. You know, I, I had Shaka Khan um, was uh, at the time going with my friend Richard Holland, and uh, he convinced her to see. And she she was. I hung around her a lot back then. I mean, she was amazing. Mm. Still is amazing, and. Um, uh, and so uh, you know, we wound up. Uh, she sang on three songs, and uh, it was 
you know, it was it really worked out great. She's such an incredible singer. And then Garfunkel, you know, agreed to sing on a couple. And uh, with Clapton, I I wound up um, meeting him through my manager at the time, Bob Ellis, and they came by the studio. He and Patty Boyd, and um, you know, I was just thrilled, you know, to to meet her. I was like, oh my god, you know, the Beatles, and you know, all the connections with her and the Beatles. Uh, and she was married to George Harrison, so I was like, wow, you know, I was, I'm such a Beatle fan. Right. And 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 he was great, you know. And so I got to know him, and we we he invited me to England to hang out, and uh, we became uh, great friends for for years. Where did so you hang I, out in England, Stephen? Uh, at his castle, which is oh, is his castle as you do, of course, yes. In Guildford. In Guildford in Surrey, yes, just south of London. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, the album went gold. I mean, that was a fantastic debut album, went gold. Yeah, it went gold. Second album went gold. Third album went wood. Uh, <laughs> we'll come to the third album in a minute, but on the first album you had Little Italy, which is a lovely song, and it's certainly one I played a lot on the radio. It, you know, it kills my thumbs to sing that song in person because it's all thumb, thumb, thumb on the guitar. Um, but uh, Little Italy uh, came about just, I was reading the paper years ago, and um, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I came across some article about Little Italy, and I just loved the way it sounded, you know, Little Italy, you know, just uh, the the tone of it. And, you know, I was, I was living in Silver Lake back then, and uh, I went in the room next door uh, and uh, wrote the song, you know. Literally like that, he went next door and biff, there it was, Little Italy was done. I had an extra room that, that my landlady had all these artifacts from all, she traveled all over the world. Right. And so it was kind of inspiring. So um, so I wrote it. I can't believe I wrote it. I look back at that, it seems very sophisticated for 26, you know, or 25, I think I was. It's got a beautiful sort of feel to it too. I mean, very sort of, uh, you know, relaxing, but very sort of makes you feel good in a way. It's lovely. When I was first uh, uh, recording it, I, I had planned on using this guy, uh, Emmett Chapman, who um, played this thing called an electric stick. And it was this big wood thing and it played like nine songs at once and, you know, it did all this stuff. And I had heard it, and I thought, you know, a long time ago, and I thought that, oh, this would be great for Little Italy. So I had him come in, and, uh, you know, he was great and everything, but it was not right for the song. And it was like, you know, this thing, it just didn't sound right. And so um, I didn't know what to do. And then I, I had um, Larry Carlton come in, and he played great. And then he played a complimentary part to my part on guitar. And uh, it wound up uh, being kismet. You're listening to Podcast Radio. This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. My guest is Stephen Bishop. So you were on a bit of a run here. Yeah. Well, I, I was, you know, young and fun and ready to be a, you know, new uh, semi-rock star. So Bish is the second album. I mean, what did you do differently on the second album, having learnt about the first album? Well, I wanted to do a, a concept album on Bish. And, you know, the cover was real romantic and everything. And I just wanted to, you know, I was reminiscing of when I was in love, you know, uh, years before um, with, a, you know, my high school sweetheart or something. And um, 
you know, I just wanted an album that was real romantic, uh, a romantic album. And so, um, you know, I, I worked, I have songs on it, like When I Was in Love and, you know, all that stuff. And you had Natalie Cole on this album as well. Yeah, and Shaka sang, Natalie Cole sang, Art sang again. Um, I had some great players on that album. What was uh, Natalie Cole like to work with? I mean, she's got such an amazing voice and obviously a great pedigree. What was she like to work with? Uh, Natalie Cole was a sweetheart. Um, she also had me on her special, you know, and that was pretty neat. Um, I, she she was a sweetheart back then. I mean, it's so sad she's gone already. Mm. I mean, what? Too soon, yeah, I know, crazy. I mean, too terrible. What what a voice. So, Bish, a big success. And then the next album was Red Cab to Manhattan, which actually failed to chart. So that must have been a bit of a shock at the time. You know, Warner Brothers, I changed my label. And I went from, you know, back then, ABC um, to Warner Brothers. And they weren't really big on that, that album. Uh, you know, they didn't like it that much, you know. I thought it was really, you know, an important album. And, you know, I have a lot of fans who think that's one of my best, that third album, uh, Red Cab. But, uh, you know, it was just that's how the sh- how showbiz is in the music business. So they didn't get behind it. That was the issue. They didn't promote it. Yeah, they didn't promote it. Yeah, that must have been very frustrating. So, I mean, it is a beautiful album. I mean, you know, the songs on there are gorgeous. Yeah, well, great arrangements. Cost a fortune. It cost like... 350000 to do. I mean, plus I went to England, you know, because then uh, back then my girlfriend, um, Karen Allen, was doing a, a movie called um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so she was doing it in England. So I w- wound up going over to England. I recorded a couple of songs with uh, Clapton and Phil Collins. Uh, we did a song called Sex Kittens Go to College. Um you can probably figure out what that's about. And, uh, yeah, I got, I got that, yeah. And um, a couple other songs, a song called Little Moon. And so we, you know, I wanted to just record some more and record these new songs. So I don't think they were big on that. And did you meet Harrison Ford, I mean, if your girlfriend was in Raiders? Yeah, yeah. I met Harrison back then. At one point, I was in, um, where were we? I think we were some, somewhere in England. And we were over at somebody's house. And we were cooking uh, hot dogs, and everybody had a hot dog and over, over the fire, you know. And it, I was standing there with Harrison Ford with his hot dog in the fire, and um, George Lucas, and uh, who was the other guy? Uh, I think Frank Marshall was the producer. And it was just, you know, uh, oh, oh, no, yeah, George Lucas and Spielberg. And we all, you know, were like cooking our hot dogs. It was just such a surreal scene. That is the most showbiz hot dog party I've ever heard of. Oh, yeah. Serious showbiz Anybody hot dog. burn the hot dog? No. Okay. That's all right then. <laughs> Not those guys. Not those guys. You've written a lot of songs, Stephen, in your time for movies. Yeah. Or sung songs for Or movies. sung, yes. I've done, I, I have two jobs. I'm a singer and I'm a songwriter. <laughs> Sometimes I do one or the other, you know. And with movies, I mean, when, when you're writing for a movie, how does it work? Does, does, the, does the movie director ask you to write a song about a subject or do they take one of your songs and then they fit it into the movie? How does it work? Well, it's always different. With Animal House, I wrote the theme song and uh, they just gave me a script. 
And I went through the script and I incorporated the characters into the movie, into the song. I, there's some that people think I wrote because I kind of sound like I wrote it or something. But that was like, it might, it might be you was written, uh, which was a hit for me. Uh, and that was the theme of Tootsie. And that was a um, pretty big hit. And, you know, I, I just sang that. I didn't write it. Yeah. And I just I sang it like I wrote it. You right. know. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think people think of that song as yours. I mean, because it really, you know, your voice was so uh, wound into that song. I think people think of that as being Stephen Bishop. And maybe they're surprised you didn't write it. Yeah, I am. Where are those people? Let's, let's find them and, and give them something to eat. I think they're listeners to the radio station, actually. I mean, there's lots of <laughs> lots of your fans. I mean, that movie was a big movie. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, obviously, I mean, you know, playing in those days a fairly controversial character doing the drag. Uh, I mean, how important was it to you, you know, to be part of something like that? Oh, yeah, in a big way, yeah. Well, you know, when I first heard it, I, they had Kenny Loggins singing. So they, they wanted me, you know, so over Kenny Loggins, which is very surprising. He's so good of an artist. And, um, you know, that's, uh, then it, it all happened, you know, at, at first we met for a meeting, um, all the songwriters and I, uh, and, uh, and the director and my manager back then. And we wound up, uh, all meeting uh, to talk about the song. And I, there was a line back then that I didn't want. And that was, uh, da, 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 watching lilacs grow. And I didn't want uh, I didn't want to sing about lilacs. Why? Why is that? I don't know. It just seemed very feminine, and it didn't didn't feel natural to me. Right. You know. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you know, Alan Bergman said I like lilacs. You know, but I was like, I can't, I'm sorry, I just can't sing about a flower in the middle of a song. You know. <laughs> so they took it out. Yep. And they put they put in a great lyric. Uh, if I found the place, would I recognize the face? Yeah, great line. If I found the place, would I recognize the face? Something's telling me it might be you. Yeah, who needs lilacs? Who wants lilacs? That's a much better yeah, line. Yeah, who wants them? Yeah, who wants them? Who wants them? East London Radio on Podcast Radio. Stephen Bishop is my guest on Private Lives. So lots of other movie themes. Any others that you know, you're particularly proud of that you really you know, think were fantastic projects to work on? Well, yeah. I mean, White Nights was great with um, Taylor Hackford. Um, and then uh, Phil sang my song, uh, Separate Lives. That was a big thing. You know, all these, you know, when you do these movies, they all, it goes along with other things. You know, it's like, you know, after White Nights, it was like a huge party, uh, you know, to celebrate. And, you know, it's, it's you know, everybody's really happy. And <laughs> and then you hope for the best with the, with the movie. But I, I guess I really, some songs I really liked that I did. Like, for example, um, uh, I didn't write this song, but I sang it. Uh, it was The Heart is So Willing from, um, from that movie with Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah, it's called The Money Pit. Oh, yes, I know, where he gets the house and everything goes wrong and the, the plumbers are looking at him while he's having the bathroom and all that sort of stuff. Right, right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So I did The Heart is So Willing from that. And I've done a lot of movies. I can't even think of all of them. I mean, I've done like around 15 or 16. 
Well, that's a great... Which is cool. It's, it's very cool. No, yeah. very cool. If you've done so many, you can't remember. That's fantastic. You mentioned Separate Lives there, which, as you said, was a hit for Phil Collins and Marilyn Martin. I wonder if people actually know that Stephen Bishop wrote that song because it's so associated now with Phil Collins. Well, sometimes uh, people think he wrote it, uh, but he's, he's really cool now. He, he um, always mentions that I'm the writer in concert. From East London to the whole of London on Podcast Radio, we are East London Radio. Follow us at East London Radio on Twitter. Stephen, you've had so many songs and so many artists have covered your songs. I mean, you know, the list is incredible. I mean, we've mentioned Phil Collins, but people like Yvonne Elliman, um, obviously Art Garfunkel, Cleo Lane, Kenny Loggins, Johnny Mathis. I mean, the list is, goes on and on and on. Ooh, there's a double entendre. I did that deliberately. You spotted it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also, you know, out of nowhere, Beyonce wound up, uh, you know, I wound up writing a song with Beyonce. We didn't sit in the living room or anything and drink iced tea. But um, I-, I talk about all this in my book. I have a book coming out at some point. Um, oh, plug the book then. Oh, give, it a, give it a quick plug. It's called On and Off. It's all about, you know, my 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 uh, uh, memories and things that happened to me in the music biz uh, up till now, you know, with all the funny different things that happened to me. I mean, there's, I, I've done so many quirky things in my life that you wouldn't believe. I mean, it's just funny. Well, we'll look for the book on Amazon then, on and Off by Stephen Bishop, coming out soon. So, new album out, Stephen. You seem to find no lack of things to write about, and you are continuing to write as prolifically as you ever did when you were 14 years old. Well, that's nice to say. Thank you. Well, the songs are brilliant, and the new album is, again, you know, just stunning. I mean, you're continually being inspired. You said you look for titles, but you must be, you know, writing and searching for titles the whole time, I guess. Well, I'm just always ready for a good title, you know? I mean... I'm uh, I, just my antenna is up. And what about performing? Will you will you do uh, will you perform this album? Will you go on the road? Yeah, I went on the road last year. Kind of tired of the road, really. Um, but uh, you know, I went on last year, and then I'll, I'll go out again next year, and we hope to play different places like Carnegie Hall and things like that. Um, so uh, yeah, but I'm sure I'll be working next year. Well, I'll come to New York and see you, but I wonder whether I could persuade you, given your brilliant English accent, to come to England. Oh. <laughs> We'd love to have yeah, you here because you've I, got I, a legion I, of fans over, here, I can assure you. I'm overdue to go to England. You I haven't are. been to England since 2008. Well, I was just wondering, in England, uh, did all, you know, when that, when the, uh, the, the um, you know, the problems with uh, music and um cds and everything in those stores where you can you know normally go into a record store and buy stuff and you know and then all those you know like tower records and so many um record stores closed and i just wondered if that that whole thing happened to england too when uh you know there was that you know where all of a sudden, all the record stores went away. It did. We had Tower Records, we had HMV, we had Harlequin, lots of independent record stores. And now, of course, there are there are vinyl shops in London, quite a few vinyl shops in London and in other cities around the UK, Newcastle, Manchester and so on. But uh, most songs are still bought online on iTunes. I was going to ask you, uh, do you have a group over there called Busted? Uh, we do, yeah. They're sort of a boy band. Well, they're not maybe a boy band now. They were a boy band when they first came out. They were just doing sort of basically really good time pop songs. 
Yeah, I've been writing with um, the guy from that, uh, James Bourne. Right, okay, fantastic. We wrote four songs together, and uh, they uh, we hope to have them come out there. And uh, they're really good. They're really good pop, you know. Well, good to hear that. It's a great collaboration. Another reason to come to England, Stephen. I don't want to oversell this, but uh, if you're writing with Busted, that, that's great. Well, Stephen Bishop, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed, and hopefully we'll see you on tour. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we've built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it and you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that so there's those two reasons it's like well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station out here let's give it a go see what happens it really was just like that we are the voice of east london elr Thanks to Stephen Bishop, who sadly rarely plays in the UK, and Dean Friedman, who will be touring extensively in London and the UK this year. Full details of his gigs can be found on deanfriedman.com. That's deanfriedman.com. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives at the same time. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts? Thank you. <laughs>